Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Today's business leaders are saying that sustainability and diversity metrics are key to the way they do business. But what does that look like in practice? Stick around until the end of this episode to hear more. When the nation is coding, if you are called to serve, you serve. From NPR and WBUR, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Masking, vaccinations, opening schools. These are the three key goals for my first 100 days. But we'll still have much to do in the year ahead, and sadly, much difficulty as well. Well, the difficulty is with the United States right now. This week, more than 3,000 COVID deaths per day. A 9-11-sized death toll every day. That is the challenge facing President-elect Joe Biden's new health team, which he announced this week. You heard Dr. Rochelle Walensky at the top there. Biden's picked ahead the CDC. Now, Biden's team isn't just tasked with pushing back the pandemic. The president-elect this week also talked about pushing forward health care in America, beginning with saving the Affordable Care Act. At this very moment, what is the outgoing administration asking the Supreme Court to do in the United States Supreme Court? To repeal the entirety of the Affordable Care Act when we need it most. Well, today we're going to talk about who's on the Biden health care team and what they will have to do to meet these historic challenges. And joining us to talk through this is Kathleen Sebelius, former Secretary of Health and Human Services for the United States and also former Governor of Kansas, now CEO of Sebelius Resources, LLC. Secretary Sebelius, thank you for coming back to On Point. Good to be with you, Magda. Elizabeth Rosenthal also joins us today. She's editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News, former longtime correspondent for The New York Times and author of An American Sickness, How Healthcare became big business and how you can take it back. Dr. Rosenthal, welcome back to you. Hi, Magna. And with us as well is On Point News Analyst Jack Beatty. Jack, good to have you. Hello, Magna. <clears throat> so I was hoping before we dive into the specifics of who the Biden healthcare team is or the people who make up the healthcare team, I'd like to start with the backdrop of the week, which is that very grim milestone that we hit, the 3,000 COVID deaths per day, the more than 200,000 new infections per day. And Dr. Rosenthal, let me just start with you. Your reflections on where we are right now with this pandemic. Well, we're in the middle of a very deep crisis that, as many have said, is likely to get worse. But I think for me, yes, there are some lights at the end of the tunnel. One is the vaccine. And one is that I think in the new administration, we're likely to see a much more centralized and coordinated response and also more consistent messaging from the top about the things we know that work until, um, you know, we can vaccinate 330 million Americans. And Secretary Sebelius, your thoughts? Well, I think that the two statistics you just quoted are terrifying, frankly, and unprecedented is a word that is overused, but no one has ever seen anything like this in this country. We are 40 days away from the inauguration. That's a long time. And I just shudder to think of the damage that is possible. Uh, Two days ago, here in my home state of Kansas, I live in Lawrence, Kansas, The headline was, hospitals can't take more patients across this state. Um, That not only impacts people who are very ill and need to be hospitalized with COVID, but it impacts anyone who is looking at a surgery or had a terrible car accident. Um, I mean, we have a crisis in the healthcare system throughout this country, getting care, support, nursing staff, doctors to people who need them. And I I agree thoroughly with Dr. Rosenthal that there is light at the end of the tunnel with the the vaccine and the debate right now at the FDA. But we we have some very grim times um, right now. And I think this crisis uh, 
Congress has got to act and get some money to state and local governments to begin to gear up for this national vaccination campaign, or that is going to be a real disaster. And Jack, same question to you. Your thoughts about where we are right now? Well, we're in a desperate situation. It's uh, it's the worst of times and potentially the best of times, but that that is still on the horizon. <laughs> I, I just read, for example, that the governor of New Mexico, which has zero uh, ICU beds, is very close now to uh, talking about rationing uh, on the basis of survivability. Who gets in? How young are you? What sort of shape are you? The other people? you can, it's triage. That's happening. That's about to happen now. And, you know, it's a, it's a, an emblematic moment, isn't it? A triumph of high science in this research and all the rest and a gross failure in public health. I mean, all along the vaccine has been here in our hands, on our faces, if we were, took the trouble to do that. And yet in this, in this crisis, we've shown that people will not take responsibility or they have not uh, for the for their own health and the health of their fellow citizens. Mm. Okay, so Dr. Rosenthal, the reason why I wanted to start with this backdrop is because it is the most urgent crises uh, facing the country right now, and the additional massive challenges of the healthcare infrastructure, the economy, are all attendant to this central um, uh, catastrophe of the pandemic. So let's let's just dive straight into in. In the period between when the Biden health team uh, can, you know, fully takes office after January 20th and the months that it will take to roll out a vaccination schedule uh, across the country, what urgently can the administration do to get a hold on the pandemic? And the, the reason why I ask that specifically is because I do wonder sometimes whether, you know, as Jack is, was pointing out, you know, when we have 200,000 new cases a day, 3,000 deaths per day. Is, is there almost sort of a, a point of, I don't want to say no, con, no return, but that mm. basic public health measures won't do much to control the spread now? Is that, is that true? Uh, no, that's okay. not true. Um, I think uh, part of the reason maybe I sounded a little more optimistic than Kathleen is I live in D.C. and in New York. Um, my mom actually died of COVID in the spring in New York. Um, and in those two places, there have been mask mandates and everyone wears masks. And yes, cases are going up because of Thanksgiving, but the rates remain very low and everyone adheres all the stores to, uh, you know, precautions. So I think there is that we can do in the rest of the country. But somehow, the, much of the rest of the country didn't get the message of what happened in New York this spring, how terrible it was. And so I think um, between now and the new administration, I'm really pleased to see a number of the, the Biden health appointees out there really pushing this message. But I'd like to see governors in um, many of the red states uh, you know, who seem not to adopt this masking policy, this social distancing policy until the hospitals, until the ICUs are, are overwhelmed. Um, I'd like to see them start getting on board. Mm. First of all, Dr. Rosenthal, Rosenthal, let me tell you, express my condolences because I did not realize that your mother oh. had died of COVID. I'm so sorry oh, that's uh, okay. to Thank hear you. that. Um, really, I mean, like we're all one or two degrees away of, se of separation away from this catastrophe. I mean, this, there's a daily reminder of that. So I'm very sorry to hear that. No, and I think the reason people in New York didn't need, I mean, of course, Governor Cuomo was very adamant about this, but people in New York didn't need to be convinced of how bad this could be because they lived it. I, I mean, uh, the sirens every night, Every one of us who's from New York knows multiple people who were sick or um, have died. And so I, I'm, I'm, I was kind of shocked when the rest of the country or much of the rest of the country didn't kind of take that to heart. Mm. Well, uh, a little later in the show, Dr. Rosenthal, if I don't, remind me to get back to a, a, a article you recently wrote about it's time to really scare people about okay. about the pandemic. Okay. So let's but let's dive into the actual folks who President-elect Joe Biden has tasked to really take on uh, the pandemic. 
I'm actually not going to start at the cabinet level or the, the level of HHS secretary. The first person I want to talk about is Jeff Zients, who worked for many years for uh, Biden and is now the president-elect's pick for being the coordinator of the COVID-19 response team. Um, and he's already received some pushback for not being uh, a, a doctor or a public health expert. And here's how he responded to that this week. I'm not a doctor or a public health expert. In fact, we've got the best ones in the world on this team. But I do know management and execution. And the key part of the role you've asked me to take on is the last part, coordinator. Secretary Sebelius, does that put you at ease? Well, I know Jeff well, and I have worked closely with Jeff, and I think he is a terrific pick for just the position he will be assuming. Jeff, uh, I knew from the economic team during the Obama administration, he's smart, he's strategic, he's done a lot of important work on the in the private sector and then in government. But when we had a, you know, just a technology crisis with the rollout of healthcare.gov in October of 2013, Jeff agreed to come into our world and essentially run the fix-it operation. And again, he wasn't a computer expert. He wasn't an expert on the law that had been written and implemented uh, up till that point. What he was is the sort of chief engineer of these incredible teams of people. Some of them were coding uh, the computer and making sure that the errors were corrected. Some were making sure that the phone lines went in, the coordination with the agencies. We put a timeline out for an eight-week fix, and Jeff was the you know sort of railroad conductor that made sure at every step along the way in a very transparent way in a non-blaming way um put a team together everyone had an all hands on deck moment and i watched him uh in that situation i can't think of a better person to come into a crisis situation and navigate all the pitfalls of what he's going to yeah. be facing. Well, you know, so crisis tested is what the president-elect keeps saying he's been looking for in his COVID team. So we'll talk more about that when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire... You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. In a recent episode, series CEO Mindy Luber says sustainability has reached a board level. Look, if you're an agricultural company and you're not thinking about water risk, you're an apparel company, you're not thinking about risk to your cotton crop around the world. If you are a bank and not thinking about stranded assets of fossil fuels, you're not probably doing your due diligence. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This hour, we are talking about who makes up President-elect Joe Biden's health team and what this team needs to do to face and and overcome the current challenges uh, here in the United States. Everything from pushing back the pandemic to pushing forward healthcare in America. And I'm joined today by Kathleen Sebelius. She's former Secretary of Health and Human Services, former Governor of Kansas. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal joins us as well. She's Editor-in-Chief at Kaiser Health News. And Jack Beatty is with us. He's On Point's news analyst. Let's listen to uh, a little bit from Dr. Anthony Fauci, 
the president-elect uh, very wisely chose to keep Dr. Fauci on uh, as head of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious, Infectious Disease. And here is what Dr. Fauci had to say about that today. I have been through many public health crises before, but this is the toughest one we have ever faced as a nation. The road ahead will not be easy. We have got a lot of hard and demanding work to do in the next year. But as we have done during previous crises, I also know we can get through this pandemic together as a nation. Dr. Anthony Fauci, and I misspoke earlier, that was not something he said today. He said it this week. Now, Let's focus on the CDC here for a second because it is absolutely a critical agency uh, at even the best of times, let alone now. And President-elect Biden tapped Dr. Rochelle Walensky uh, to fill the role of head of CDC. And when she uh, took to the podium this week, she said that she went to medical school during the worst years of the AIDS pandemic. And that inspired her to devote her career to ending HIV-AIDS. Now, a new virus is ravaging us. It's striking hardest once again at the most vulnerable, the marginalized, the underserved. Nearly 15 million Americans have been infected. Over 280 million loved ones are gone. The pain is accelerating. Our defenses have worn down. We are losing life and hope at an alarming rate. That's Dr. Rochelle Walensky, uh, uh, President-elect Biden's pick to head the CDC. Now, Dr. Walensky is an infectious disease specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital. So we want to turn to someone who knows her well. Dr. Rajesh Gandhi joins us now. He's director of HIV clinical services and education at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Gandhi, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here. Uh, so, first of all, tell us, what is it about Dr. Walensky that seems to have uh, made the medical and public health communities overjoyed with excitement that she is uh, very, very likely to be the next head of the CDC? Uh, well, let me start by saying I think she's absolutely the right person to take the helm of the CDC, and I, and I think that feeling is really universally shared by people in the field. And, and the reason why is, as your guests have said already, um, we need a, a clear, coordinated, and consistent response to COVID-19. That's what we've been lacking, and that's why we are where we are. And I think what Dr. Belensky brings to the table is the ability to really restore a science-based approach to COVID-19. We just heard Dr. Fauci. Um, medical science is what has led us out of previous pandemics, including HIV. Um, both Dr. Belensky and I uh, came to medical age during the height of the AIDS epidemic, and we really need public health experts uh, out front. We need to combat that lethal information that's out there around um, vaccines and treatment. And I think Dr. Walensky is absolutely the right person. She has the the skills, the vision, um, the um, deep and personal integrity to lead the CDC at this time of crisis. She has an enormous job ahead of her because there has been, as you know, any number of stories or examples of perhaps how the CDC is not the agency that it used to be, that it once was. I, just this week, we spoke to um, an epidemiologist uh, in Australia, uh, Mary, uh, in Australia, who told us that that one of the reasons why Australia has done so well in managing the pandemic is that it's it, you know it it sent its epidemiologist to the CDC several decades ago, and they imported all that American knowledge to Australia for example, regarding contact tracing, and are executing it there. But of course, the same thing hasn't necessarily happened here right now. So what about the sort of repair and recovery of the agency itself, Dr. Gandhi? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the crown jewels of the American biomedical system are um, the CDC, the NIH, and the FDA. And, and the a lot of luster has been lost in the last um, years around the response. Um, I do think that Dr. Walensky can restore the luster of the CDC. That is, the CDC is the preeminent public health um, agency in the world. And I, I think she'll do that because she um, has proven herself um, both in her own research, which is really informed both clinical as well as policy decisions, and then most recently here in the state of Massachusetts, 
She's been one of the key leaders in developing a coordinated, um, clear, and consistent response to COVID-19, not only in our hospital, I'm, I'm a member of her division, but also throughout the state of Massachusetts, where she's advised the, the state on controlling COVID-19. So, yes, I agree with you that the challenge is enormous, but I also think that she's the right person at the right time. Mm. And, of course, obviously, full disclosure, I'm sitting here in Boston as well. Uh, and we have to be honest, rates are going up here in Massachusetts too, though, Dr. Gandhi? Uh, that is, of course, true. And, um, and I, I think, as um, Dr. Rosenthal said, we in Boston, like in New York, really suffered during the early phase. And I think a lot of the um, decrease in the rates over the summer is a testament to the value of public health approaches. It is challenging as the weather gets cold, as we all cluster together, and as pandemic fatigue has, has set in. Um, the one other thing I will say Dr., about Dr. Walensky is she is perhaps one of the clearest and, and best communicators uh, I've ever met. And I think that's, again, a, a, a universal feeling. And I think that kind of clear, consistent messaging is, is what we need now more than ever. And we have not had it. We need it now. And, um, and you're right, um, numbers are going up. But I think, um, you know, we, with applying the public health approach with the vaccines on the horizon and on the imminent horizon, I, I think we can get through this. But we need this, this kind of leadership that she offers. Well, Dr. Rajesh Gandhi, Director of HIV Clinical Services and Education at Massachusetts General Hospital, where he has worked closely with Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Well, Secretary Sebelius, let me turn back to you briefly on on something because I wanted you to pick up where Dr. Gandhi left off because you on this very show uh, previously had talked about the importance of communication right now, public communication coming from not from the White House per se, but from medical and public health experts. So uh, just I just wanted you to reflect on what Dr. Gandhi said about uh, uh, Dr. Walensky's ability to do that. Well, I would start, uh, Magna, with uh, what Dr. Rosenthal said earlier about finally seeing some uh, coordinated communication. And I think nothing could be more important to not give mixed messages to the public, which has really happened since April in America, but a consistent message. And Dr. Walensky will be a terrific messenger at the CDC. And I think, um, you know, as Dr. Gandhi has already alluded to, not only does she bring these impeccable credentials and knowledge and background, but will give great hope to the uh, longtime extraordinary experts inside that agency that they will not have their voices muzzled or overridden by some political spin. That has been, I think, the the troubling feature uh, since April in this country and letting the scientists speak as Tony Fauci has been doing consistently, but hearing directly from the CDC, making sure that the FDA assures the American public what the steps were in the vaccine uh, authorization, uh, unveiling the data, letting them be front and center. And then the politicians appropriately can echo what they hear from public science, as opposed to the politicians correcting or contradicting the public science, which is what we've had. So I'm optimistic that um, not only do I think Dr. Walensky is a terrific pick for CDC, but I would agree that CDC is the gold standard, not only in this country, but around the world. They have employees in 50 countries. They have employees in most health departments in the U.S. and we, they're the backbone of public health in this country. So finding a great leader who is a good communicator and will be very clear about the direction and coordinate with her fellow scientists uh, will be Mm. extraordinarily helpful. Well, Dr. Rosenthal, I want to hear from you about this because, uh, I guess suppose sometimes I just feel a little obtuse that we continuously we, we have known from the past and continuously hear even now about the CDC being, as Secretary Sebelius said, this gold standard for uh, research uh, and and public health, like the agency um, that the world looks to. And yet, um, just to at the risk of repeating myself. The United States, the people of the United States haven't been able to uh, be the beneficiaries, 
during this pandemic of that expertise. I mean, to the point where just this yes. week there was the you know, yet another story, the story about a, a senior manager at the CDC had told congressional investigators that she was ordered to delete an email um, that's su- suggesting attempted political interference by the Trump administration on the COVID response. Um, yep. So, I mean, is it really... This is my dumb question, but is it really just <laughs> politics that's interfered here, or or is there some is there is there also a concomitant deeper issue with the CDC itself? Um, it's really not with the CDC itself, but I I mean the CDC is known for having the smartest epidemiologists in the world, and I think it does still have some of the best people who've endured, but it has been. Um, Public health in this country has been progressively defunded for decades. Um, Just as a little example, the the Detroit Health Department, which used to have over 700 employees, for a while in, in 2012, 2013, had five. You know, so, you know, you can have really smart people, but if they don't have the resources um, to do something with it, that's that's uh, that, of course, limits you. And part of that was post 9-11. We were focusing on terrorism. And so a lot of the money shifted in that direction. I think the second thing is, um, you know, we we will need an administration that puts the CDC out front. You know, what we've seen during the covid response so far is the politicians um, on the on the front row and some of the scientists sitting in chairs off on the side. I think what we see in other countries is often the scientists doing the press conference with maybe the politicians in the back row just kind of affirming that they support them. So the CDC has had neither the financial nor the political support that it deserves as one of the crown jewels of public health in this country. So, Jack, this brings me back to you because, you know, here we have then okay, that the scientists are the experts and yet they are, are they have to, as a government agency, operate within the political milieu of the administration and and the Congress that they're dealing with. Talk about that a little bit because we can idealize what, what doctors and public health officials can say to Americans, but is there a limit to their effectiveness um, given the makeup of Congress, for example. Well, Dr. Walensky did a study of this, actually, of uh, what makes for success in, uh, in implementing a vaccination program. And she found it isn't so much we, you, can, you can make efficacy, you can make a, a vaccine that's 95 percent effective, but if you don't get it into people's arms, uh, it's not going to work. And what were the hang-ups in that? Well, one of them is funding. According to one source, the states need about $8 billion to implement this mass uh, vaccination program. How far, how much money has the federal government, government given them? About $400 million. Meanwhile, Congress, it, this money is bumped in, you know, it's put in with all the rest of the money that's been tying them up with this uh, stimulus bill. And, and Congress is effectively looking at the American people and saying, message to the people, Congress dropped dead to the American people. You know, that, that bill, that program should be taken out of that bill and done as a separate bill. Because if that funding doesn't go through, nothing is going to happen as it should. And then Dr. Rosenthal's uh, operation has, has, has looked at this and found that... Uh, that only that very few states have have prepared for this, according to the, the Kaiser Family Foundation, something like 47, 47 states are, are are way behind in preparing to do this. In other words, the political and uh, political blocks are there, and the organizational blocks are there, and and yet we expect this to somehow spare us this scourge by summer. Mm. Well. Uh but President-elect Biden, in fact, touched on this point this week when he uh, unveiled his health care team, uh, and he promised efficient mass vaccination in the United States, praised scientists and uh, pharmaceutical companies and researchers for developing vaccines in really record time. And then he said this. Developing a vaccine is only one Herculean task. Distributing it is another Herculean task. You know... And vaccines in a vial only work if they're injected into an arm of people, especially those most at risk. This would be one of the hardest and most costly operational challenges in our nation's history. 
We're going to need Congress to fully fund vaccine distribution to all corners of the country, to everyone. Secretary Sebelius, we've just got about a minute before we have to take our next break here. But um, I'll be honest, it doesn't fill me with confidence because Congress can't even come to a, a, a working agreement on keeping food on people's tables past December 26th right now. Well, Jack is absolutely right. This has got to be pulled out as an emergency authorization and passed right away. So states can begin to hire teams to not only uh, conduct the vaccinations, but do the logistics within the state. All the federal government has promised to do is get the initial doses to cold storage facilities in those states. And then states are responsible for all the rest of the puzzle. And right now, I would say that KHN has accurately documented that they are not ready. There are 3,000 counties in this state, I mean, in this country, each of whom is a separate jurisdiction, and they're trying to figure out what in the world they're doing. States are desperate for money. So this is really an operational failure, again, at the federal level, uh, that they've refused to take a clear federal role. Joe Biden has a plan to do that. But again, we've got to start yesterday in getting ready for what will be the most massive vaccination campaign we've ever had in this country. Well, Secretary Sebelius, Dr. Rosenthal and Jack Beatty, hang on here. We've got to take our second break of this hour. We are talking about President-elect Joe Biden's healthcare team that he uh, announced this week and the challenges that they will have to face and take leadership on come January 20th. We'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We are talking this hour about... President-elect Joe Biden's pick to lead his – or picks, I should say, to lead his health care team and what these people will have to do come January 20th to push back the COVID pandemic and also, big picture, advance health care in America. I'm joined today by Jack Beatty, Kathleen Sebelius, and Elizabeth Rosenthal. And let's just hear a little bit more from uh, some of the other folks that Biden tapped for his team. For example, Dr. Vivek Murthy, who has previously served as Surgeon General of the United States. Biden has asked Dr. Murthy to take up that role once again. And uh, when he spoke this week, Dr. Murthy said that the COVID, pandeep, uh, COVID pandemic, excuse me, has exposed much deeper problems about life in the United States. If anything, it has underscored a host of other epidemics that are devastating families, and shortening lifespans. These challenges are both caused by, but also exacerbated by, broader societal issues, from the economic strains so many people are facing, to the disconnection and loneliness that many of us feel. That's Dr. Vivek Murthy, President-elect Biden's pick for U.S. Surgeon General. Now, picking up on that theme, Marcella Nunes-Smith the president-elect's choice to create and lead a new COVID-19 equity task force. Well, here's what she said uh, about about bridging or reducing inequities in American health care. I grew up on St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands, a place where people too often died too young from preventable conditions. My own father had his first stroke in his 40s and was left paralyzed. I learned there was a term for what we were, an underserved community, marginalized 
by place, and by race. And now the COVID-19 crisis has laid those inequities bare. Well, Jack, Kathleen, and Elizabeth, I'm wondering if you could just listen along with me a little bit more, because we really wanted to sort of uh, drill down on what the Biden team would need to do in concrete terms to help specific communities uh, like the ones that Nunez Smith just talked about. For example, the Navajo Nation, because Navajo leaders are saying right now that the coronavirus is spreading virtually uncontrolled across 75 communities. And as such, this week, Navajo Nation expanded its current lockdown by an additional three weeks, pushing it to at least December 28th. Now, Jonathan Nez is president of the Navajo Nation, and we spoke with him, and he says the current wave is much more dire and much more severe than the first COVID outbreaks the nation experienced this spring. So we have people that live off the nation who want to come home to visit their family members or else to help their elders hunker down for the winter. And those that work off the nation, you know, coming back and forth, they catch the virus, they bring it home. And of course, at home, you kind of let down because, you know, it's your family member. Now, President Nez says that the latest surge is especially painful because last summer, the Navajo Nation took extraordinary steps to stop the spread of coronavirus. And then their success, and they were truly successful at this, was an exemplar for the rest of the United States. We had Dr. Anthony Fauci on a town hall a couple of months ago. And at that time, we were at our all-time low when states around us were starting to peak. And you did that by abiding the things that I have been speaking about to the rest of the country almost on a daily basis. And um, he did say that Navajo could be a model of how to combat coronavirus. The reason you should be proud is that you have proven that when you do these public health measures, you can turn around a serious surge of infection. Lessons learned, right? We should have kept the campaign out of staying home a little bit more. I know we let down a little bit. And, and now we have a campaign, a media campaign. Navajo Public Health Order 2020-031 was issued December 3rd, 2020 to slow the spread of COVID-19. Individuals can slow yes, the spread educating our citizens, you know. Full 57-hour weekend lockdowns start Friday at 8 p.m. and end on Monday at 5 a.m. Prevent COVID-19. Keep your guard up and stay home. We're also using our way of life teaching, our culture and tradition. There was a story of the hero twins that were given weapons that were fighting off monsters. In the modern era now, there are modern day monsters. And we framed it in that way so our elders and our people can understand. Okay, so what's the modern day monsters? You got alcoholism, drug addiction, suicide, depression, cardiovascular disease. And now the new monster called COVID-19. So what are the weapons? The weapons are these recommendations that we're giving to our people. What is the armor? The armor is wearing your mask. And being a warrior means you have to be equipped to fight this modern day monster that has snuck into our, our homes, our communities, and our nation. But of course, just like any other society, any other group of people, there are some people that just do not want to listen. We mandate mask wearing. And then you got visitors saying, well, I'm in Arizona. I don't have to abide by you because the governor of Arizona don't have a mask mandate. Well, we say, excuse me, but we are a sovereign nation and we have the ability to make laws. And if you can't abide by that, uh, I'm sorry, we're going to have to cite you. There were over 200 of our Navajo citizens who volunteered to be a part of these clinical trials for Pfizer and BioNTech. For us being a part of these clinical trials, there's a track record. There's, there's no adverse 
reaction to the Pfizer vaccine. And so we are planning to have Dr. Berla from Pfizer be a part of a town hall meeting in the next week or two to talk about the clinical trials as well as building public confidence to take the vaccine when it gets available to the Navajo people. The Indian Health Service has been underfunded since its inception and infrastructure and education that were promised by these treaties have yet to be fulfilled. But we're, we're hopeful with the new administration coming in that some of this will change. Jonathan Nez is president of the Navajo Nation. So this brings us to the Department of Health and Human Services writ large. And I want to spend the last couple of minutes, or at least a few minutes here as we head to the end of the show, talking about HHS uh, because, and Dr. Rosenthal, I'll start with you, uh, Dr. I'm sorry, excuse me, Xavier Becerra um, is the president-elect picked to be the next Secretary of Health and Human Services, you know, currently Attorney General for the state of California. So first of all, um, what do you think a, a new secretary's day one priorities ought ought to be come come their their confirmation? Well, of course, it has to be consistent messaging and action on the uh, COVID outbreak, but that will mostly involve putting the scientists in uh, in the driver's seat. Um, but uh, Attorney General Becerra is a, a fascinating choice because. People say, oh, he's a lawyer, but actually he's been very aggressive on healthcare issues and making sure that everyone gets covered in some way or another. So um, if he can get confirmed, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting things that will address not just COVID, but our health systems ills generally, which, you know, uh, things were pretty bad in terms of uh, drug prices, hospital bills, disorganization. Um, before COVID hit, and that was partly why our our response was was not so great. Uh, I mispronounced uh, Attorney General Becerra's first name uh, a minute or two ago. It's Javier, and this is just a sign of the end of a long week for me. So my apologies <laughs> on that. Uh, but Secretary uh, Sibelius, pick up on what Dr. Uh, Rosenthal was saying, especially I, I heard Dr. Rosenthal say, if he gets confirmed, because we have already been hearing um, significant pushback from members of Congress. I mean, Senator Tom Cotton saying that he believes Attorney General Becerra is just unqualified and, quote, a lifelong politician. Well, unfortunately, um, you're already hearing some partisan sniping, but that shouldn't detract from the fact that I think Javier Becerra is a totally fabulous choice. He was in the Congress when the Affordable Care Act was passed and, in fact, was one of the key leaders in mobilizing the coalition in the House to do just that. He's been on the front lines of defending it. So in terms of the biggest health law in 50 years, he is the premier expert in the country. He also has a long congressional history of working on health issues, underserved families, uh, expanding health care, but more importantly than healthcare, given the broad range of issues HHS deals with, he is very familiar and has, again, a great track record dealing with uh, immigrant children and children and families coming across the border on taking on the consolidation in the health industry, which often drives up prices, taking on the opioid crisis uh, and going after some of the pill pushers in this country, HHS has a much broader array of issues to deal with uh, than just uh, the COVID uh, crisis that we're in right now. So while he will be very involved with that, he has to look out over 11 operating agencies, including mm. the Indian Health Service, which we just heard about one of the traditionally most underfunded uh, agencies with the most vulnerable individuals in this country trying to deal with health issues. So 
I think it's great that President-elect Biden has a COVID team who will wake up in the morning and think nothing but COVID 24-7. And side by side, you will have a very experienced manager in Javier Becerra. He's running the California Justice Department, which is a huge agency with multiple locations and lots of personnel, and a great policy track record on knowing these issues well, knowing Mm. Congress well. I think he is very appropriately suited to come into this job and be very effective from the start. Uh, just briefly, Secretary Sebelius, uh, have you spoken with uh, Attorney General Becerra? Because I imagine he might want to call you, given the fact that when after your confirmation as HHS secretary, you were immediate in the midst of you know another pandemic, you were immediately whisked away into the, to the situation room, as you told us once, to start dealing with this. Have you spoken with him? I have had a brief congratulatory uh, message. We are, are scheduling time for a much longer conversation, and, and clearly I will do anything I possibly can to be helpful. Um, he's in a little bit of a scramble right now, uh, but I want to, you know, hopefully add my voice. I did work with him, as I say, closely from the time I came in because he was a key member of the leadership in the House of Representatives, and so I've known him Uh, for a number of years and think he's terrific. Uh, If he does get confirmed, what would be your advice? I like to say when, Megna. Uh, You you say that. I I, I will only report things when they happen. Uh, But uh, what, I mean, what would be, what's your advice for him on how to approach that that job on a day-to-day basis? Well, it's... COVID uh, issues will take a lot of his time and energy uh, at the front end, which is very appropriate. It's the biggest health crisis we've ever had in this country. HHS, as you've heard, has the crown jewels in FDA, CDC, NIH. Um, Those are all part of the HHS umbrella. So being a part of that COVID recovery effort and health effort is critical. He'll be involved in helping to manage the vaccination campaign, giving messages. But it's also very important, and he'll have to work kind of a job and a half for a while, that he make it clear to all the other critical agencies, the Centers for Mm -hmm. Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Department on Aging, the uh, mental health and substance abuse agencies, the Agency for Children and Families, that they are important, that he understands their mission. And so carving out some time to actually be physically available to those employees and to those leaders, getting the right leaders in place at the right time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The good news is President-elect Biden has this array of talent who are eager to come back into government or to come into government for the first time. And help to restore the federal government. Uh, But I think they're going to be facing real challenges in a lot of agencies where my guess is vacancies haven't been filled in a timely fashion and people are missing. Well, uh, Jack, we've got about a minute here left to go, and I wanted to give you one last swing at it. And and I think Secretary Sebelius really sets us up for for a a big question here about uh, the, the aftermath of the Trump administration, that and and that's part of what this whole healthcare team will have to be dealing with as well. Yes, and and along with that, chronic uh, situations, lacunae in American healthcare. You know, six million Americans are eligible for free healthcare. They don't get it. They don't sign up for Medicaid. Why? No one has told them about it. Or take type 2 diabetes. 30 million Americans suffer from it. It's a preventable disease. Where is the public health education campaign that will help people get away from that? We have in the model of cigarettes what we can do over 50 years, been cut in half. The public needs to be put back into public health. Jack Beattie, On Point News Analyst, thank you as always for joining us. Thank you. And Kathleen Sebelius, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, former Governor of Kansas. Secretary Sebelius, it was great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Magna. And Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, Editor-in-Chief at Kaiser Health News and author of An American Sickness. We didn't get to your why we should scare Americans really a lot by, <laughs> about COVID <laughs> now, but we've got a link to your article about that at onpointradio.org. Okay. So, Dr. Rosenthal, thank you. Thank you. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. 
This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes featuring Mindy Luber, CEO of Ceres, a nonprofit dedicated to integrating sustainability into businesses. Here's host Kurt Nickish. Are the people who are working with ESG data now at companies, are they in a sustainability department? Does this just become part of general strategy or part of finance? How is that evolution happening with the actual people who are looking and working with the numbers? So with both companies and investors, the cute idea of social responsibility that was at a manager level or something their foundations dealt with, that's gone. It is very clear based on data, based on facts, based on trends, that integrating sustainability into the core business is crucial. I mean, you cannot have a climate goal that says we're going to get to a net zero by 2040 if every department at the enterprise is not working on that. That's your manufacturing people. It's your supply chain people. So we find that there is often a sustainability team, but they're laying out a plan that involves almost every enterprise, every office, every part of a firm. And that's what we're seeing because nobody can do the kind of cross-organizational work in one little group. It involves the entire team. It involves HR. Who are you hiring? Is DEI being implemented? How is that working? As it relates to where do you get your resources? Are there enough natural resources to make your product? What are the auto companies doing now that they've committed to by 2035, there will be no combustion engine vehicles coming off their assembly line for consumer vehicles? So sustainability is no longer a cute, a niche, a part of something off to the side. It is an integral part of almost every major enterprise and every major investor. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Marotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.